Good morning. It's good to be with you again today. And uh, I applaud you for making it through the mountains of snow. <laughs> Fallon speaking, I guess. <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure how much is coming or whatever, but we're glad to be here. We're glad that the heater works. We're glad to be together. And uh, we get to begin uh, really diving into the book of Romans today. So if you would open up in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. I will warn you in advance, we're not going to make it all that far. Get used to it, I guess. <laughs> but we're going to do a verse today, a verse. We're going to read uh, Romans chapter 1, and uh, I'm going to read all the way through verse 6, but for our discussion today, we're going to be talking about uh, verse 1 and introducing uh, Paul himself. And so you have your Bibles open there, Romans chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts at this moment. We come before you. We are thankful that we are able to do that. We worship you in this moment. We remember that there is none like you. There is no other God. You are our only creator. You are our only redeemer. And so, Father, we worship you. We give you glory and we give you honor. And we offer you our lives, we offer you our days, our families, and ourselves. And Father, we praise you for what you've done for us in Christ. That you have reconciled sinners to yourself in Christ. And thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to live within us. And thank you that you have given us your word. And Father, as we come to your word this morning... We want to set aside those things that would take our minds off of your word, things that would compete for our attention, perhaps would compete for our affections. And we ask that you would work in our hearts and help us to have our nose in the text, to have you before us, to have your word before us, and to have our ears and our eyes and our hearts open to you. So we ask that you would work this morning, that you would bless during this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I always uh, get a kick out of when someone is introducing a very famous person, they say, and now a person who needs no introduction, and then what do they normally do? They go on to introduce them, right? <laughs> well, today uh, it we are so far removed from the first century, and we are 
uh, perhaps many of us not really familiar with Paul, that perhaps he does need introduction for us. And so today, that's going to be the primary focus, is, is introducing Paul, uh, not just the man, but what he stood for. And so our text today is only going to be that first verse as we begin in the book of Romans. We're going to be talking about Paul himself. But before we really get to that text, uh, just a couple of reminder things about the background of this book. It was probably written in about A.D. 57, uh, perhaps 58. It was written uh, during his third missionary journey. And as we worked our way through the book of Acts, uh, there was a time when he was at um, uh, he was traveling back and he stopped in Corinth and he wrote uh, probably this book. And so it's from uh, early on in his ministry, relatively speaking, 57. Well, it's not that early in his ministry, but 57 A.D. Uh, roughly. And it would have been written to a church that he had never visited. He had never been to Rome at this point. And so he knew a few of the individuals who were there in that church because their paths had crossed before. But he had never been there. He wasn't known to them, most of them by uh, by face and so he um, he is writing to this church that doesn't really know him and the church was probably started founded by people who maybe had been at Pentecost in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit came when when Peter got up and preached and and these people many of them may have been converted under Peter's preaching at that time and then when they returned back to Rome they uh, took the gospel with them and and so you have this church that grows up and you can see that primarily in the beginning it would have been a mostly Jewish church because that was their main connection with the gospel was through Pentecost through Jerusalem and so the church begins in a very Jewish fashion but as the gospel spreads there were Gentiles included but then something very interesting happened in 49 AD 49 there was a riot that happened in Rome or maybe a series of riots surrounded around this person named Crestus a man named Crestus that scholars uh, think is a misspelling of Christ and so there was a there were riots among the Jews in Rome regarding this guy named Crestus which is probably a reference to Christ and you can imagine how some Jews believing in Christ and others vehemently rejecting Christ would cause conflict we see that in other places in the book of Acts and so because of that riot uh, Claudius uh, he sent out the Jews from Rome and so the city of Rome they expelled their Jews from the city and so here you have this church that was perhaps mostly Jewish and part Gentile. Now all the Jews have left because they've been forced to leave. The Roman government doesn't make distinction between Jewish Christians and, and, uh, and Jews who follow Judaism still. And so these Jewish Christians would have had to leave. And so left behind was a bunch of Gentiles. And so now the church begins to change flavor. It begins to become a much more Gentile church. And then in 54... Something interesting happened. Claudius died. Claudius, the one who had given the edict that said they had to leave, he died. And so the Jews began to return back to the city. But now when they return to their church, what used to be a predominantly Jewish church has taken on a distinctly Gentile flavor. And so you can see that them assimilating back into their own church after being, having been gone for a few years might have caused some difficulties between Jew and Gentile. And so that's kind of the state of the church, and that helps us understand why Paul is going to write later on about relationships between Jews and Gentiles and how they're to think of one another. And so that kind of sets the tone for what's going uh, to happen there. Now, as we 
read about Paul in uh, the book of Acts, he was initially referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And occasionally he's still referred to as Saul. And then we read about him as Paul. Well, it, it's not that he got saved and therefore took a, a Gentile name, Paul. Saul is a very Jewish name. Saul is the first king who was a Benjamite. And, uh, and so he, uh, he got his, his name, Saul, his Jewish name, from that first king, probably named after him. Uh, Paul himself is from the tribe of Benjamin, so you've got that connection. But, but he would have had another name. Uh, this other name would have been Paul. And so he had that name before he became a Christian. But the point of me bringing this up is just uh, so that when we hear a conversation about Paul and we hear a conversation about Saul in this New Testament context, it's the same person. It's just referring to the same guy, only in a Jewish context, his name would have been Saul. And in a Gentile context, the more appropriate name would have been Paul. It would have been easier to pronounce and would have been more common. And so that's who our author is, right? He has two names because he lives in two worlds. He's a Jew, but he lives in a Gentile world. And he's a, uh, he, he's a missionary, actually, a, an apostle to the Gentiles themselves. And so that was important to him. And we're going to see about Paul himself that his qualifications are unique for a Jew. They would have been very unique for anyone at that time. But Paul himself is uniquely gifted. He's qualified and he's called to be God's primary messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. And we need to commit ourselves to being shaped by what he has to say. And so as we come to our text, just one verse this morning, I'll read it one more time. Verse one there, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We see just a few words, but there's a ton being communicated here. When you compare this introduction, and as he continues in chapter 1, you compare it with his other epistles that he wrote, this is a fuller introduction. He's giving more information about himself. He's trying to explain to them who he is. But I want us to notice, first of all, his unparalleled credentials. His unparalleled credentials. First of all, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he's referred to several times. He's a man from Tarsus. Well, you and I don't really know much about Tarsus, perhaps, but Tarsus was a, a great city of learning. It was one of three centers of learning in the Roman Empire, alongside Athens and alongside Alexandria. And so it was a, it was a very learned city. It was, uh, uh, there was a great university there, a, a school of, of philosophy there. And, and uh, there were comments that, that uh, people made about how much the, the people from Tarsus loved to study and they loved to know and they were passionate about it. And, and uh, Paul himself, referring to Tarsus in Acts chapter 1, said he says very humbly of it that it was no obscure city, right? That's his, his understatement, right, of saying it was a big deal. Tarsus was a big deal. It was an important city. And so Paul, that, that shaped Paul himself. As we look at Paul's ministry throughout the book of, of Acts and even in some of the epistles that he wrote, we can see that he, he's able to quote Greek philosophers. Apparently without study. He just knows them. When he writes to Titus, he, he quotes a Greek philosopher. When he speaks at Mars Hill... In the book of Acts, he stands up and quotes a couple of different 
uh, uh, poets and philosophers among the Greeks. And so you have evidence here that Paul himself was fluent, not only in the Greek language, which he wrote in, of course, but also Greek culture, Greek literature, Greek philosophy. He was a learned man, even in a purely secular context. And so he was a man from Tarsus. But he's also a man from Jerusalem. He says of himself that, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel in Jerusalem, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. He says that in Acts chapter 22, and he's, he's defending himself. He's explaining what he's about and what he's doing. And he refers to this great teacher, Gamaliel, who was one of the most famous Jewish teachers. And he said, I studied under him. I was one of his pupils, and not just one of his pupils, but Paul himself was a rising star. He says in another place, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Galatians chapter 1. And so he's a man from Jerusalem. He's extremely well educated. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. And he was a star pupil. He was a rabbi. He knew the Bible. He knew Jewish religion. He himself was educated in that sense. And so not only was he a, uh, a, a well-educated person when it came to the secular world and philosophy and literature of Greece and of Rome, but also he was a very, very highly educated and authoritative figure as a rabbi among the Jews. And so he was a man from Jerusalem. But there's more to that. He's also from Rome. I don't mean the city of Rome. He had never been there. But he was a Roman citizen of the Roman Empire. And so, as such, he, he was uh, afforded certain privileges. For example, the big deal that in uh, Acts chapter 16, remember when, when he was arrested, uh, Paul and Silas, they were arrested and they were beaten and they were thrown in jail. Well, the next day when the officials find out what has happened, they become very apologetic because they realize Paul and Silas are Roman citizens and they have committed a serious boo-boo by arresting them without trial, incarcerating them without trial, beating them without trial. So here were two Roman citizens standing uncondemned, and they had been, they had been mistreated in such a fashion. And so what happens? The officials come down, and they don't just say, all right, you're free to go. They, uh, they, they come, and first of all, they, they want them to leave without making a big fuss. But Paul knows his rights as a Roman citizen. He said, oh, no. They arrested us, and they beat us, and they threw us in jail. They can come down here and apologize. And so they do. The officials come down and they apologize and they ask them to leave the city immediately. Remember Philippi? And, and what did Paul and Silas do? Did they leave the city immediately? No, they, they went and visited some friends first. They went to see the church and they went to visit Lydia and they went to talk to the converts. And then when they, when, when the, you know, when they saw fit, they left town. So here he was a Roman citizen. He had certain uh, rights. He had certain privileges within the Roman world. And so here you can, you can imagine when you think about Paul as the, the missionary, the, the apostle to the Gentiles, he is uniquely qualified. Can he speak on behalf of Judaism? Can he address Judaism? Oh, yes. Can he speak in a Gentile context? Oh, yeah, he was educated that way, too. And he can quote their philosophers with them. He can speak fluently in their own language. He knows their culture. 
And he has certain rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen that gives him freedom to move about. It gives him opportunities within the Roman Empire. And so he's uniquely qualified with these unparalleled credentials. So you think about yourself. I think about myself. And I don't have the same credentials. And you don't have the same credentials. But I want to tell you this. You may feel like in your workplace you are stymied perhaps. You can't do a ton of ministry. You don't have a great influence because you just work in the marketplace or, or uh, you know, you're just a stay-at-home mom or, or you're, you know, whatever. And, you, and, and it's tough for you to figure out how could God even use me in this situation? But I want to tell you a secret. The circle that you're in, the sphere that God has placed you in is different than the one that he's placed anyone else. And I'll, I'll tell you for myself, when I go to minister to someone... One of the questions they ask me, so what do you do? And then I say, I'm a pastor. And that is often the end of the conversation. <laughs> oh, look at the time. You know, I just, I'd love to stay and chat, you know, but I've got to. And so it puts it into a lot of conversations that those conversations for you would still be open. Because God has put you in a different situation. And your circle of friends and the place God has placed you is an ideal ministry opportunity for you and for no one else. You have credentials to be in that place. And so I want to encourage you, minister in that place. And take advantage of those opportunities because the rest of us don't have those same opportunities like you do. So Paul himself had unparalleled credentials but he's also qualified because of his surprising slavery. His surprising slavery. Because Paul started off as a persecutor of the church. As a zealous Jew, he saw it as his duty to fight against Christianity. He saw it as a pollution of the truth. He saw it as a heresy. He saw it as something to be stamped out. That actually, the way he saw it, those Christians were enemies of God. And so he fought against Christians with everything that he was. So much so that in the uh, end of chapter 7, when Stephen is being stoned, there's Paul watching, giving his approval. And the witnesses were laying their garments at his feet. He had some position of authority in that. And he watched it with approval. And when that was finished, he continued to breathe out murderous threats against the church and he would go to the, to the religious authorities and he would get permission to go and track down Christians and he would find out where they were and, and what synagogues were allowing them to be there and where they were meeting at homes and, and he would get permission and he would go there and arrest them and he would take them and haul them away and, because he saw Christians as being enemies of God. He was a persecutor of the church and he was good at it. And that's a surprising fact about him, but that's part of his credentials. He says of himself in Galatians 1, You heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But of course, God didn't leave him there, right? Because we see this radical conversion. So here you've got Paul, who's the violent persecutor of the church, becomes radically converted. So hold your uh, finger there in Romans chapter 1 and flip back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. 
And this is a very famous account of his conversion. He tells of it a couple more times in, in subsequent chapters in the, in the book of Acts 22 and 26. But we see in chapter 9 the actual events as they unfold. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So here's... Saul on his way to persecute the church, on his way moving into new territory as he goes to Damascus to find even more Christians to arrest and to put into jail. And Jesus stops him on the way. This light from heaven causing him to fall to the ground, catching every bit of his attention. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so the one who had been the persecutor of the church is about himself to become persecuted. The one who was the hunter of Christians will soon become the hunted. From this time on, Paul is Jesus' man. The conversion of Saul, by the way, remains one of the greatest, clearest evidences of the truth of Christianity. Here you had Paul, who was a rising star. He was, he was stellar at what he was doing. He was outpacing all of his peers. And he was committed to persecuting the church very publicly. And very publicly, he converts. And those he begins to persecute, what does he do? He begins to go to them. He begins to teach them. He begins... Whereas he used to persecute them, he becomes a mentor for them. His change was very public. The Jews, who had been his compatriots before, they saw it, they recognized it. The men there traveling with him, his traveling companions on the road, they saw the th whole thing happen. They didn't understand it, but they knew Paul was different at the end of it than he was at the beginning. And the Christians were well aware of what he was doing. At the very peak of his ministry of violence, he's suddenly and unexpectedly and very publicly seen to change sides. But then we see a response from him, a response of service. Back in, in uh, chapter 9, again, of, of the book of Acts, we see him continuing on. We see what happens there. He says, For some days after his conversion, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? 
And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Do you see what his immediate response was when he turns to Christ? Jesus brings him to himself in this amazing, miraculous, glorious way. And and what's one of the first things he begins to do? Go and preach and prove and demonstrate. No, Jesus really is the Son of God. I was wrong. Jesus is the Son of God. He begins to minister right away. And so, of course, he ministers there enough so that uh, the Jews begin to plot to kill him. And so what does he do? He leaves from there and he runs away, goes to Jerusalem, right? And he, he goes to Jerusalem and begins to preach. And what happens in Jerusalem? He went in and out. So you would think Paul would have learned his lesson. I mean, he's been a Christian for a short period of time. I don't know how long. But there already, you know, has been a price on his head. You'd think he'd go underground a little bit. So he runs off to Jerusalem. It looks like he's going to do that. But not Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 28, He went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So here's the second city he's run to where they are wanting to kill him. All of this is because Paul is a slave of Christ. He says, Paul, most of our English versions, almost all of them say a servant of Christ Jesus or a bond servant of Christ Jesus. This is the word slave. We discussed in, in our Sunday school class today, John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana and Jesus speaks to the servants there at the wedding and says, go and fill the jars. The word for servant there is different than this one. That one actually meant servant. It's the word uh, that we get the word deacon from, those who serve. This word is doulos. It means slave. He is the property of Jesus. He belongs to Jesus entirely. A slave is wholly owned by his master. A slave only does what his master wants him to do. His will is to do his master's will. And he as a slave doesn't get a vote in what that is. He belongs to the master. Well, the Bible says that we're all slaves. Paul's going to say later in chapter 6 of, of our book, he, he will say in verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? We've been created to worship. It's part of who we are. And so the result is we worship something or someone. And what we worship is our master. That is the thing we are enslaved to. Whether to sin, as Paul's going to say, or to righteousness. We are enslaved. We do worship. We do serve something. It's part of what we've been created to do. And in our sinful state, we end up worshiping many things that we should not. God Himself should be the object of our worship, but what we worship ends up being our master. We may worship money or power or pleasure 
or accomplishment or ourselves. We worship something. Everybody does. And what we worship is our master. Biblically speaking, the idea of human autonomy is a myth. We always serve something. We are slaves. But the question is, slaves of what? The thing that determines the nature of slavery is who the master is. Who the master is. And Paul says here, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. This master is a good master. This master is a loving master. And he's loving enough that he would be willing to give his own life, pour out his own blood to purchase those who had been slaves of a cruel master to make them slaves of him, a good master, the one who always does good for his people, the one who always loves them. That's who is Paul's master. That's what the call of Christianity is, is to take on a new master and not be enslaved to something else, but instead turn to Christ and be enslaved to Him. And so the application today is that some of you may still be thinking that you are a better master, a better Lord than Jesus is. You may be thinking that you're doing just fine all by yourself and that you will take care of yourself in a better way, that you are a better master or that you have some other better master to serve. But there is no master like Jesus. There is no Lord like Jesus who would give his own life, pour out his own blood to purchase you. And so the call for you today is to repent from those other masters and turn to Christ and take him as your master. Take him as your Lord. His burden is easy and his yoke is light. Thirdly, what makes Paul qualified to write this letter? What makes Paul qualified to tell us what to believe? Well, thirdly is the, his divine calling. He says, Paul, a slave of Christ, a called apostle, or called to be an apostle. He's got a divine calling to be an apostle. An apostle is someone who's sent as an emissary for another person. He speaks on behalf of the one who sent him. He bears a message for the one who sent him. He speaks with the authority of the person who sent him. There is a common usage of the word apostle that occurs in our New Testament as well. It means something more like missionary. One sent with a message, not from Jesus himself, but from the church. To, so, for example, we could see that Barnabas is called an apostle, an apostle. And there are others, a couple of others, who are called apostles. And they're not, they're not called in the same way that Paul is saying here. There's a distinction. These are missionaries serving on behalf of God's people. But there's a clear distinction between them and Paul or the twelve. This is a full authoritative meaning of the word apostle. The twelve apostles had been chosen by Jesus himself. And he himself had called them to himself and taught them, trained them for a number of years. And then before he went away, he passed on that commission to them to continue teaching, to continue preaching. And that's in the Great Commission. 
And we see in the book of Acts chapter 1 that uh, Judas Iscariot, who had died, he had killed himself. He needed to be replaced because he was one of the twelve. And so the the early church, the, the apostles there got together and they discussed what they should do. And they said, well, we need to replace him. And we have three criteria to replace him. First of all, this person that we choose has to be a companion of Jesus. Second of all, he had to be a witness of the resurrection. And thirdly, he had to be chosen by God. And so they put forward two candidates. And Matthias himself is chosen. And so Matthias is named as the twelfth apostle. And you'll notice that the very next thing that happens in your Bible is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes. They stand up and preach. And so we have the twelve apostles. And what does that tell us about Paul? What does that mean about him? How do we understand how Paul relates to the twelve? Did the early church make a mistake when they appointed Matthias? Well, I don't think so. And here are the reasons I don't think so. First of all, Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus had spent 40 days with them speaking specifically about the kingdom of God. It seems unlikely that the very first thing they would do after Jesus left was mess everything up. I think that's unlikely. And secondly, even if they did, I find it very surprising that nowhere in Scripture are we told that they made a mistake. Scripture is not above saying the apostles made mistakes. And yet the comment is never made about the choice of Matthias that it was wrong. And thirdly, Paul himself, who defends his apostleship forcefully in numerous places, he's unafraid even to stand up and confront Peter. Paul doesn't have fear. And he nowhere says they were wrong when they chose Matthias. I should have been the twelfth. So I don't think Paul is one of the twelve. I don't think he's intended to be one of the twelve. I think he's a separate one. His authority is on par with theirs. There's no question about that whatsoever. But when Paul was called by God, he was given a very specific mission that was different than theirs. Different than the first twelve. He's called, in Romans 11, he calls himself an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul himself, speaking of this calling by God, says in Galatians chapter 1, he says, When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's calling was specifically to the Gentiles. It wasn't exclusively to the Gentiles. He preached to the Jews as often as they'd let him. We're going to see his heart for the Jews in Romans chapter 9. But he was sent for the Gentiles. And in fact, Paul speaking in Acts chapter 26, as he's retelling his conversion story, Paul is told this, quote, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul calls himself in Romans 1 a called apostle. Christ's hand was directly upon Paul. 
to be the apostle to the Gentiles, to take that gospel with him to the Gentiles, to the Jew first, he's going to say that repeatedly, but also to the Gentiles. And so that's his third qualification is that he has been specifically and directly called by God. And fourthly, a final qualification is his gospel commitment. And I don't mean by that his commitment to the gospel, which was great. What I mean by that is, and what he means in this passage, is that God himself had committed Paul to the gospel ministry. Look what he says at the end of verse 1. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Set apart by God for that purpose. We've read about Paul's call into the ministry. This was God saying, Paul, here's what I have for you. Paul, you're my slave. I'm your master. And I am saying, this is your life. The gospel. Now, it's interesting. He says, set apart for the gospel of God. I think there's a little bit of a play on words here. The word Pharisee, which... Paul often talks about how he was growing in Pharisaism. He was, he was outstripping the, his, his fellow Pharisees. He was outstanding among them. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what does Pharisee mean? Set apart from. So the Pharisees saw themselves primarily as being set apart from the world, set apart from defilement, set apart from Gentiles, They were defined in many ways by what they were set apart from. And I think Paul takes that same phrase and turns it on his head when he says, set apart for the gospel of God. You see, what what you are set apart for is more important about you than what you are set apart from. What you stand for is a greater definer of who you are than what you stand against. Are you going to define yourself by who your enemy is? I stand against this thing, no matter what it takes. You can get pretty warped in that position. And he says about himself, I have been set apart for the gospel. His commitment is to the gospel. His commitment And you see it carried out in his entire life where he risks his neck again and again and again for the gospel. In fact, he writes this whole book about the gospel. And so I say he's a set-apart Pharisee. He is set-apart for the gospel. And I love what he calls it. Called to be an apostle, set-apart for the gospel of God. That word of... It's just two little letters, and it can be very confusing. Does it mean the gospel from God? The gospel that belongs to God, as in God's gospel? Well, this could certainly mean that. Does it mean the, uh, the, the, the gospel that's about God? It could certainly mean that. And I think that's primarily what it means here. It's the gospel about God. The reason I think that is because Paul's understanding of all of reality including his own life, including the gospel, stems from who God is. His theology is built from the top down. From an understanding of who God is, and therefore in light of that, that means certain things for who I am. Very often, too often, 
we begin with things that we know to be true about us. We know to be true about us. It's just true about me. It's obvious. It's common sense that this thing is true about me. Maybe about our freedoms, about our virtues, about our abilities, about our value. Things that we, we know in ourselves to be true. And then we reason based upon that body of experiential knowledge up towards God. And so what that means is, because I know these things here to be true, then that means that God can't infringe upon my freedoms. That means God can't have a different definition of my value. He can't have a different definition of my virtues because I know these things to be true. See, I started from the bottom and I reasoned my way up towards God. Not for Paul. For Paul, he started with who God is. And the gospel is about what God has done. The gospel is not primarily about man's need. The gospel doesn't start right here in your pew. The gospel primarily starts with who God is. And once we get a firm understanding, a clear biblical understanding of who God is, then we begin to work our way down to these things that I quote, know to be true. And I will submit these things to God himself, to what scripture says about who he is. And I may end up reinterpreting some of these things I thought I knew were true about myself. For Paul, his theology was built from the top down. And that can make a radical difference. It makes a radical difference in many, many ways. If we hold that high view of God consistently through this series in the book of Romans, if we will hold that high view of God consistently all through our Christian lives, then we will be able to understand what Paul teaches in this book. We will come to love it as some of the highest and greatest and purest insight, revelation by God into what the gospel is and how it works. You may be a person who is unused to wrestling with what the Bible teaches. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe you're yourself not even a Christian. Or maybe you're just not very experienced with the Bible. But if from the very beginning you will get firmly fixed in your mind a biblical view of who God is, if you will begin with an understanding of Him, of things that the Bible says are true about Him, and you will nail that down, then as we go through this series... And as you grow in your Christian life, you will have a firm direction about what is true about all of life, about all of reality, because it's rooted in who God himself is. And that's drastically different than starting with what I presume to be true in my own heart and going the other direction. And so if you're new to the faith, if you're relatively new to thinking in theological terms, I encourage you. Listen for what we learn about God in this book so that we have him fixed in our mind for who he really is. But on the other hand, you may be someone with a lot of years of biblical familiarity under your belt. Maybe you've been in church a very long time. Maybe you've read your Bible a lot. You've heard a lot of teaching. As we work through this epistle written by this profoundly qualified and set-apart apostle. Keep your eyes 
on the text. You may very well find that there is a place or two or many more where you may need to readjust things that you have held to be true. Things that, of course, they're true. You may need to readjust those things in light of what Paul teaches us about who God is because many of our beliefs don't really line up with what Scripture teaches. That's part of growing in the Christian faith. The challenge is, when we brush up against those, what will we do? When, teach, uh, when uh, Scripture teaches something contrary to a thing that we hold deeply to be true, what will we do? And so my challenge for all of us is, as we're working our way through this series, keep our eyes fixed on the text and listen to what it tells us about who God is, about what He is really like. And when we do that, we will have our own views shaped and brought into line with Scripture. And we will see a new understanding of reality based upon the true reality that Paul is revealing to us in this book. Paul is uniquely gifted and qualified and called to be God's primary messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. And we need to commit ourselves to being shaped by what he says. And so I encourage you to go with me on this journey. You already know it's going to take a while because we're a month into it and we've gotten to verse 1. But if we will be committed together to looking for God in this text, to keeping our nose in it, for being to, if we will keep our mind fixed on being directed and changed by what is here in the text, we will see growth and life and change and we will see a, a blooming happen in our own lives and in our own congregation. And I, that's what I want. That's my desire and I know that's your desire too. And so go with me on that journey and let's keep our nose in the text and let's keep our eyes on God Himself. Let's pray. Father, we bring ourselves back at the end of this message to give our attention to you so that our eyes may be fixed on you, so that we may rejoice in who you are and what you've done, that we may rejoice in this gospel that is yours. It is about what you have done. It is about you. It is about glory to you. It is about your righteousness. It is about your wrath all wrapped up in this gospel. And so we give you thanks and we praise you and we rejoice that we get to come into your presence. We rejoice that we get to have peace with you. And not only that, we rejoice in you through Christ who has given us redemption. Father, I pray that as we go forward in this series, that that we will indeed keep our nose in the text and our eyes on you, that we will be directed by what we learn in this book, that we will have our own beliefs and thoughts challenged, even ones that we hold to be true. May, May your word hold sway in our lives. Father, we ask for your blessing. And as we go forth in this week, as we go out into our workaday world, Father, I pray that you would keep our minds fixed on you and may we be like Paul, looking for those opportunities to share you, to share this gospel about God with people around us. And I pray that you would bring very great fruit from it. 
Father, we rejoice. We rejoice in this book. We rejoice in what you have done through Christ on our behalf. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. There will be a family up front to pray with you if you want to pray with someone. Other than that, God bless you and you are dismissed. We'll see you this evening.